Please turn with me in your Bibles to the fifth chapter of the Gospel of John. This morning we will be looking at verses 19 through 29. John chapter 5, verses 19 through 29. Please give your attention to God's word. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. One of the biggest news stories this past week, at least for those who are people of faith, was about the Pentagon's ban on proselytizing, as they called it. It sounded initially like they were prohibiting the sharing of your faith if you're a Christian. The Pentagon came out a couple days later and clarified, and this is what they said, I'll give it a direct quote, Service members can share their faith, but must not force unwanted and intrusive attempts to convert others of any faith or no faith to one's beliefs. Now, when you hear that statement, I guess it needs more definition. They're trying to define what proselytizing is, but they also have to define some of these other terms. If they're talking about, by when they use the word unwanted, intrusive attempts to convert others, if they're talking about putting a gun to somebody's head and saying, convert or die, then I agree with them. That shouldn't be allowed anywhere, let alone in the military. But I've heard stories about officers putting their Bible on their desk and being accused of unwanted and intrusive efforts to convert others. And see, that's the problem. In a culture that is shifting in its very foundations of belief and morality and absolute standards, 
the definition for unwanted and intrusive actions by Christians is getting broader and broader. Now, in the past, Christians have hurt our cause, I think, by overreacting, sounding like Chicken Little, saying the sky is falling, the sky is falling, crying persecution unnecessarily. But it's not difficult to see if you've been paying any attention to what's happening in the mainstream of our culture. It's not, it's difficult to not see real persecution for the church as being right around the corner, barring a remarkable work of the Spirit, possibly in revival, which is what I continue to pray for. Just this past week, we had an active NBA player come out out of the closet, so to speak, as they say, and proclaim himself to be gay. And what was remarkable was the kudos and congratulations from everyone, including the President of the United States, for his declaration. But even more remarkable was the reaction in the media to an ESPN reporter, who is also a brother in the Lord named Chris Broussard, when he was asked to respond and in a very humble and gracious way stated that he believed that homosexuality is a sin. And I think that my observation can be best summarized from this quote from World Magazine. It says, The reaction of scorn and abuse many had anticipated would befall sports' first openly gay athlete instead came crashing down on Broussard. Things have changed. We've seen it, those of us that have been around for at least a decade or two. And the reason that Christians are becoming pariahs in our culture is not that we claim to have an objective standard for what is right and wrong and what is true and false in a quote-unquote postmodern culture. That's not the reason that we are becoming pariahs. It's that what we proclaim as our absolute standard is becoming more and more reprehensible and disgusting in the eyes of our culture. Back in the Roman Empire of the first century, what led to the intense persecution of the church was very simple. Ultimately, it came down to the central confession of faith of the church, which is Jesus is Lord. The emperor is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And the history of the church is very clear that we will go through cycles, but ultimately the world, when it's given the power and authority to do so, will persecute those who say Jesus Christ is Lord. The absolute authority and the absolute lordship of Jesus Christ is really the issue that we're looking at here in John 5. Last week we saw that Jesus was accused of what seems to be a trivial thing in our minds, in our culture, even in the church culture, but was a huge issue. It was a very serious accusation in the first century in Judea, which was he was accused of breaking the Sabbath. He was accused of working on the Sabbath when he healed a man who had been lame for 38 years and encouraging that man to break the Sabbath by taking up his bed and walking away. 
But what we saw as we got to the end of the passage last week is that Jesus, when he was asked to defend himself, actually got himself in hotter water. He says in verse 17, My father is working until now, and I am working. Jesus, by making that statement, ups the stakes tremendously. Because no Jew would deny that God still works on the Sabbath. God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh day. But that rest for God certainly doesn't mean inactivity, doesn't mean he goes off and takes a nap. God is working. If God wasn't working on the Sabbath day, the universe would fly apart in a moment. And what's remarkable is that Jesus says, My Father has been working on the Sabbath, and I am working on the Sabbath. He identifies himself with the work of the Father. He claims that his works on earth are really the Father's works. And this was a direct challenge to the authority of the Jewish leadership. They claimed to be the ones who spoke for God. They were the ones who officially interpreted the word of God for the people. But Jesus here pulls rank on them by claiming to have a higher and unique authority than the Jewish leadership because he was the son of God. And the leaders heard very clearly what he was saying because the leaders accused him of blasphemy, of making himself equal to God. And that was worthy of his death. The rest of chapter 5 is really an elaboration of Jesus on this claim to have this unique authority as the Son of God and the implications of that authority that was given to him by the Father. He basically is saying, I have the authority to say what is right and wrong. I have the authority to say what is a sin and what isn't a sin based upon my unique relationship with God the Father. And that's what the rest of chapter 5 is about. It is really probably not that well known. When you think of passages in John, you don't think of this as being a familiar passage. But as we have been following Jesus' ministry, I think this is one of the most crucial passages in all of John because here is where Jesus lays out the basis of his authority for claiming to be Lord of all. The Jewish leaders accused Jesus of making himself equal with God. And Jesus essentially in this passage says, I am not making myself equal with God. I've been equal with God before, since before creation. I have always been equal with God. I am not just now making myself equal with God. Jesus here in this passage If you look carefully at what he's saying, he's delving into the deep, incomprehensible, and profound mystery of what we call the Trinity. As you know, the word Trinity is not in Scripture. But the book of John makes it very clear what the Trinity is. And he says that that Trinity, that relationship between God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit, that's how you explain his authority to speak with absoluteness on Sabbath-keeping, and every other religious and moral and social issue. According to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is one of the doctrinal standards of our denomination, this is how it defines the Trinity. 
According to scripture, there is but one God only, the living and true God. There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. There is only one God, but that God exists eternally in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I would love to explain that further to you and make that more clear to you, but I can't. We're talking about like ants trying to describe what a human being is like. We're human beings trying to describe what God is like. And all we know is what the scriptures reveal is that he is one God in three persons. But that's why Jesus says in verse 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. He's basing that statement on the truth of the Trinity. He doesn't claim to be God the Father. If he, if that's what he were claiming here, then what we would have is what the church called back in the early centuries modalism, what we look back on as a, as a heresy in the early church. Modalism was a form of Unitarianism that said that God the Father, the God of the Old Testament, became God the Son, and then God the Son, after his earthly ministry was over, became God the Holy Spirit. There, in that teaching, you have one God, one person in three different forms. That's not the way Jesus talked about his relationship with the Father. That's not what the scriptures teach about God. That the Trinity teaches us that the Father, Son, and Spirit have always existed from eternity past to eternity future. And Jesus Christ is claiming to be the perfect eternal Son of our of his perfectly heavenly perfect heavenly father in an eternally perfect father son relationship that's what he's claiming here john wrote about this relationship we'll see it again and again let me just give you a few examples first of all from what we've already looked at back in chapter one very beginning of this gospel says in the beginning was the word his term for jesus christ In the beginning, when everything was created, the Word existed, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Then he goes on to say, in chapter 3, Jesus, speaking of himself, John records the words of Jesus. Listen to what he says here, beginning in verse 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. And bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? He's claiming to have seen and heard the things of heaven in eternity past and communicating those things to us on earth. That's what he's claiming. He goes on down in verse 31. Actually, John quotes him here saying, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. And then skipping ahead to the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17. There, Jesus says to his father, listen to how he describes this relationship here. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Verse five. 
And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You see, Jesus is claiming to be God, but not God the Father, God the Son, the second person of the the Trinity. And since he is the perfect Son, the divine Son, he can do nothing of his own accord, he said. He says, if you really understand who I am and who God the Father is, you will understand that I can't act independently of the Father. I can't defy the Father. I can't do something differently than the Father intends. Because we are one. He always does the will and plan of the Father. But he does talk about doing the will of the Father, so doesn't that indicate that he... God the Son and God the Father are not equal. Well, in theology, we talk about, and let me throw a couple of theological terms out there if you haven't heard them before. We talk about the ontological trinity and the economic trinity. The ontological trinity, that's talking about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who they are in their very being, in their essence. They are absolutely equal as the, as the catechism says, in substance, power, and authority. But when it comes to the work of the three persons of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is a hierarchy in the roles that they play in carrying out the work of creation and the work of redemption. And so Jesus always speaks of him as the Son doing the will of the Father. And submitting to the will and the plan of the Father. And the Spirit being sent by the Father and the Son and doing the will of the Father and the Son. And so there is a hierarchy in roles, even while they are equal in essence and power and glory. And that is the relationship, this eternal relationship of the Father and Son that Jesus is talking about here in chapter 5. And he says that that unique eternal relationship is not only the source of his power to heal, but it's also the basis of his authority to declare what is breaking the Sabbath and what isn't breaking the Sabbath. As he would later declare, I am Lord of the Sabbath. Why? Because he's the eternal son. But look at verse 20. Jesus ups the stakes again. He says that he will display greater works than these. He says, are you amazed by these works of healing? These miracles that I'm doing? He says, I'm going to do far greater works than these. And then he makes two mind-boggling claims. First of all, Jesus here claims to be the giver of life. He claims to be the giver of life. Look at verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Now here he's not primarily referring to the kind of miracles that we would see later in his ministry where he raises the son of the widow from the dead or where he even speaks and raises Lazarus from the dead. That's not what he's primarily referring to here in context. He's referring to what the book of Revelation calls the first resurrection. The regeneration of souls. Of speaking life into a soul that is spiritually dead. 
And scripturally speaking, to be spiritually dead means to be deaf to the word of God, blind to the truth of God, hostile and rebellious in your will towards God. That's what it means to be spiritually dead. And that's what Jesus claims to have the power and authority to give life to. Look at verses 24 and 25 where he describes it in more detail. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, I say, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. He says it's coming and it is now here. Already he is speaking his word of life and it is causing dead souls to live. It is taking away spiritual deafness and blindness. It is changing the hearts from rebellion and hostility to seeking after God and believing in the truth. This is what he called in chapter 3 being born again. The hour is now here. And he goes on. You notice there he says, if you have experienced this first resurrection, this spiritual resurrection of the soul, if you've experienced that by the grace of God through the word of Christ, he says that you have eternal life. You possess it. It belongs to you. It's life, and we'll be looking at further in the Gospel of John what life means to Christ when he says that. It's life and it's eternal. He says you have passed or you've crossed over from eternal spiritual death to eternal spiritual life. And don't miss the great promise in that. You cannot lose eternal life. Otherwise, it's not eternal. It's the very essence of eternal life that it cannot be lost. If you have experienced this first resurrection, you have crossed over. You are no longer in the realm of spiritual death. You are eternally in the realm of a spiritual life. That's because it's based on the finished work of cross of the cross. Jesus dying for our sins. He paid the penalty in full. The life that he gives cannot be taken away. And those who have received a spiritual resurrection, this first resurrection, are promised, even by Christ's word here, a future bodily resurrection. And amazingly, Jesus claims the authority to give that life as well. That future bodily resurrection. We are body and soul. We can be resurrected now spiritually by the word of Christ. And in the future, we can be resurrected bodily, eternally, by the word of Christ. He describes that in verses 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul describes three states that a believer can be in. He says that you can be at home in the body, this fallen body that we're born with, and away from the Lord. Or you can be away from the body and in the presence of the Lord. That's the state of a believer when he dies today before the second coming, until the second coming. You are, your body rests in the grave. Your 
soul, having been resurrected, goes to be with the Lord immediately and remains with the Lord until Christ comes again. And then the third state is when you are clothed with your heavenly body or your heavenly building, he calls it there in 2 Corinthians 5. Three states that a believer can be in. In the body, away from the Lord, away from the body and with the Lord, or clothed with your heavenly body, perfected in body and soul for all eternity. And so that's what Jesus is referring to here, that one day he's going to come again. And by the power of his word alone, he is going to raise our physical bodies in in a perfected form and unite them with our perfected souls, and we will live eternally with him. But Jesus points out that that resurrection is not only for believers in the sense of a physical resurrection. He says that everyone will receive a physical resurrection. Look at verse 29. He says believers receive a resurrection of life and unbelievers will receive a resurrection of judgment. When Christ comes again, there will be a what we call a general resurrection. Everyone will receive bodies again. But those who are unbelievers will be reunited with their bodies so that they can stand before God in judgment. And then when they are judged for their sins, they will be punished in soul and body for eternity. That's a hard truth. But that's what Jesus is alluding to here. And in this context, he makes his most, not not most shocking claim, there's one more to come, but a more shocking claim because Jesus then claims to be the judge of all mankind. Look at verse 22. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Verse 27. And He, the Father, has given Him, the Son, authority to execute judgment, because He is the Son of Man. The Bible makes it clear that history is linear. It had a definitive beginning by the Word of God when Christ the Son created all things by the power of His Word. And it has a definitive end when history will end. And everyone who has ever lived will have to stand before God and give an account for every action, but also every word and also every thought. They'll have to give an account. The books will be opened as we stand before a holy God who cannot look upon sin. He's so pure and holy. And Jesus here, here in John chapter 5, makes the amazing claim that on that day, when we are raised and we stand before the throne of judgment, before our holy God, we're going to look on that throne and we are going to see the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Because He is the one that has been appointed as the judge of all mankind. Jesus says He has been appointed judge because He is the Son of Man. And that refers to an Old Testament prophecy that's one of the most important Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah. Daniel chapter 7. Listen to the description. Daniel says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. 
And then he goes on to describe one who ascended to the throne. This is written hundreds of years before Christ was born. He says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus claimed to be the Son of Man. That's not referring to his human nature primarily. It's referring to Daniel 7. He is the one who has been appointed to stand both as judge of all mankind and the eternal king of all the universe. It's on that basis that he claims to be the judge. And he describes it himself in Matthew 25. You know these familiar words. When the Son of Man comes in all His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. Then He will say to those on the left, Depart from Me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's what Christ is claiming here in John 5, to be that judge who will determine the eternal destiny of everyone who's ever lived. Paul said in Acts 17.31, God commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Christ is the one before all of whom all of us will stand. But for those of you who are believers, there is no fear. Because there is not, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And at the end of, of, of Romans chapter 8, Paul gives us this amazing promise. He says, beginning in verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Who's going to be seated on the throne? Who's going to be rendering judgment for every soul that's ever lived? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. The good news, the gospel message is that The one who created us and the one before whom all of us will stand as judge is also by God's appointment our Redeemer. The one who shed his blood to pay the price for our sins. That took the condemnation that our sins deserved upon himself. And he proved that the price was paid by being raised from the dead and ascending to the right hand of the Father. And he is the one now interceding for us as our great high priest. Blessed, this is Revelation 26, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. So here in John chapter 5, Jesus is saying to those who challenged his claims and authority, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the giver of life, both spiritual life and physical life. And I am the judge of the world. Which brings us to his most radical claim. And the one which we as 
his followers as his disciples are being increasingly persecuted for. Verse 23. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus Christ is Lord. And he has all authority over every religious, moral, social, spiritual, and physical area of life. We are accountable to him and his work on the cross is our only hope. Faith in him is the way that we honor him and thereby escape his judgment. Remember what John's purpose is in writing this entire gospel. Chapter 20, verse 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Out there in the world, we represent the giver of life and the judge of all mankind. We must gently, lovingly, humbly, and boldly tell people the truth about him, no matter what the cost. I'm going to close with a quote from an unlikely source. Penn Gillette is part of the comedy team Penn and Teller, but he's also an a, a aggressive atheist, outspoken atheist. But he talks in one interview that I heard, he talks about someone who tried to share Christ with him one day. And this is how he responds. He says, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect people who don't proselytize. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell and you think that, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how do you have to, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it and that truck was bearing down on you, there is a certain point where I would tackle you. And this is more important than that. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for opening our eyes to see the glory of Christ in John chapter 5. The things of which Christ speaks here are profound and life-changing. And Lord, those of us who have experienced that first resurrection rejoice in your grace this morning. May we be more bold in our witness to Christ, the giver of life and the judge of all. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.